Welcome to episode 10 of the Rubber Biscuit Roadshow. I am your host, The Gypsy. In last week's episode, we were witness to a very shocking moment in the life of my biological father and of my mother. I was there also, but I was way too young to remember it. And fortunately, I was not scarred by the situation. However, my mother was scarred for the rest of her life. In this week's episode... We're going to move forward, and I'm going to continue on telling you about the aftermath of the burial of that biological father that we've been talking about, Leroy Everett George. And we're going to start taking a look at what happened to my mother in the aftermath of that situation, and also what happened to Leroy Everett George, as this week's episode continues with The Kindness of Strangers. I had finally escaped the endless questions of my unknown relatives and I was now standing in the crisp air of the March afternoon. I enjoyed my cigarette as I watched my Uncle Cecil in his tight gray suit zoom up and down the hard-packed dirt road on a small go-kart. The bright crimson of the little go-kart was in stark contrast to the grayness of the day. The questions had been reasonable not too primed. They were the type of questions that people who have a distant connection to another would naturally ask. The simplest but hardest question of all had come from my Uncle Wesley. How's your mother? he queried. In the pause that took place before I answered, I saw the realization cross Wesley's face. He knew that I knew the secret of his long-ago sin. I politely told him she was fine, and I answered all the other questions that the casket party asked of me. As the questions dwindled down, I started asking a few questions of my own. The answers to those questions still haunt me to this day. I learned that afternoon that my biological father had lapsed into a coma when his new doctor had prescribed the wrong dosage of his blood pressure medication. I learned that he had divorced Wilma years previous and that he had married a younger woman. Leroy had purchased a duplex and had separated from the younger woman a few months before he lapsed into his coma. I found out that the reason why my siblings had not shown up for the funeral was because they were too busy descending just like hungry vultures on Leroy's worldly possession and property. I was told that Leroy had been on the outs with his children for years, yet they were even now trying to profit from his death by filing a malpractice suit against the doctor in the hospital. Apparently Leroy hadn't even been cold an hour when his estranged wife took the duplex and had her attorney start the probate proceedings on the rest of his property. Up until this date, I had always wanted to meet my brothers and sisters. Now that desire was gone. Within the past few minutes, the greed of my siblings had overrode my desire I had ever experienced to know them. I watched for several minutes as various family members took their turns on the go-kart. What an odd funeral dirge the cacophony of the two-cycle lawnmower engine that powered the go-kart made in the chill air. It's time for you to go, isn't it? Lori had moved up by my side and watching the go-kart annex with me. Yep, it's that time, I said. I hate to break up their fun, but I need to get back to my bike. Lori suggested I go around and make my goodbyes. She said that she would borrow Cecil's car and give me a lift back to Cecil's house so I could get my bike. I thought that was a good plan as I did not want to be an inconvenience to anyone. I walked around and promised everyone that I would keep in touch. I hate to admit it, but it is a promise I never kept, but then again, they have never kept their promise with contact either. Uncle Cecil, I began. Look, I would like to get a stone for we, uh, my father. Cecil looked at me and shook his head. We can take care of it, he said. 
no, this is something I need to do for myself. Cecil just looked at me, waiting for me to continue. He gave me life. Let me give him this, I insisted. Cecil nodded his head. Okay, it's yours. I shook his hand and continued my goodbyes. Aunt Lula, Aunt Hazel, and Cousin Dwayne, and so on. I shook the hand of my cousin Ted and told him how jealous I was that he was an engineer on the Burlington Northern Railway. He promised that we would party the next time he had a layover in St. Joseph. I said goodbye to everyone except my Uncle Wesley. He made no move towards me and I likewise made no move towards him. As we moved down the road, we rode in silence. The sky was slowly getting darker as the miles quickly sped by. It was not necessary for us to talk as Lori took me to my bike. We were both lost in our own musings, and either one of us wanted to intrude upon the other's thoughts. The DA had originally wanted a first-degree murder conviction for Levery, but based on preliminary testimony and statements made by witnesses at the coroner's inquest, the first-degree charge had been reduced to a second-degree manslaughter charge. Without exception, everyone the DA had interviewed testified that Leroy Jones had ceaselessly provoked Leroy George until he had just snapped. The judge sentenced Leroy to 20 years without the possibility of parole. The judge had made his decision based on the threat made by Leroy just a few days before the final incident. Leroy had told Shirley to take their son and go home to her mother. Shirley had argued with Leroy, but to no avail. Leroy had been insistent, and Shirley knew deep down that he was right. She knew that even though she loved Leroy more than life itself, that she was not strong enough to wait for him 20 years while her life wasted away. Shirley was not able to reconcile herself to the thought of having to face her mother. She took her savings and moved herself and little Jimmy to Kansas City, Missouri. They moved into an apartment just off of Broadway. Shirley enrolled in a local trade school where she learned to operate a PBX switchboard and obtained a position as an operator for a large law firm. She also got a part-time job making costume jewelry at a company around the corner from their apartment. It had been six months since Lee had been sentenced, and Shirley was slowly rebuilding her life. There was not a day that went by that Shirley did not think about or miss Lever. Yet the pain of her loss lessened with each passing day as she dealt with the reality of her life. Shirley had been teaching Jimmy how to cross the street with a light when he had been run down by a hit-and-run driver. His small body had been thrown through the air to bounce off a light pole and come to rest at the feet of a doctor who, at that very moment, had been coming out of the Memorial Auditorium. Shirley's miracle baby had survived despite multiple concussions, a shattered kneecap, and an accidental overdose of penicillin by a careless nurse. Jimmy had recovered quickly, and the only long-term damage was a severe allergy to penicillin and soft drugs and a possible weak left knee. Jimmy had been in the hospital for six weeks, and it was time for him to go home. Shirley had been getting ready to leave to go check Jimmy out of the hospital when the phone rang. Cecil George had been as gentle as possible, giving Shirley the detail of Leroy's accident without going into vivid graphic detail. Shirley had told Cecil to quit trying to protect her sensibilities. My God, Cecil, she exclaimed. I sat through Lee's trial where they described again and again that nigger's decapitation. So cut the bullshit, Cecil, and just tell me what is going on. Now Shirley regretted her false bravado when she had first talked to Cecil. Shirley had placed the receiver back in its cradle. She was in a state of shock, her mind blank and her soul empty. She would forever regret that she now knew the vivid graphic detail of Leroy's accident. Everything had stopped making sense, and nothing would ever make sense for her again. We sat in the warmth of the car, watching the darkness encroach upon this chill March day. You can crash at my place tonight and head back tomorrow, Lori said. 
Thanks, I said, but I need to get back to St. Joe tonight. I did not know why I had declined her offer to spend the night. I seriously doubt if Rhonda would barely notice if I didn't make it home until the next day. Are you sure? She persisted. I know a great place to eat in town. Maybe catch a movie? I reached out and put a hand on her shoulder. Maybe some other time, okay? Lori reached for me, gave me a hug, a peck on the cheek, and said, Brain check. I gave her a hug, a peck on the cheek, and said, You betcha. Lori instructed me to keep in touch, and I assured her I would. I watched the taillights disappear down the road as I zipped up my leather jacket and put on my gloves. Straddling the bike, I tickled the carburetor. I kicked the bike through twice, turned on the key, and kicked it over. The motorcycle rode to life, and I tickled the throttle, keeping it running. While the bike warmed up, I lit a cigarette and contemplated my decision to return to St. Joe tonight. It was already getting colder, and I would have much rather spent a pleasant evening with Lori than navigating the cold, dark miles along Nightmare Alley. What the hell was I thinking? Letting outside, I flicked my cigarette butt towards the ditch and eased the bike down the road. I made a left onto K4 and accelerated into the night. Shirley had worked hard to make a life for Jimmy, even marrying to give Jimmy the father she wanted him to have. That marriage had ended in disaster when she discovered, the hard way, that you can't reform a drunk who does not want to be reformed. The only good thing that Shirley took away from the marriage was a daughter. Shirley had always made it a point to make sure that the children knew as much about her past as she could tell them and she could recall. She made an extra effort to tell Jimmy everything about her relationship with his father. The hardest thing she had ever told him was that he was illegitimate. She had been so afraid of what Jimmy's reaction would be that she had asked her minister to tell him. Jimmy took it all in stride and had not seemed bothered by that fact. Yes, she had told Jimmy everything by his father except the one thing that she had kept a secret. On a late spring evening in 1969, that secret was about to be revealed. It's funny how things seem to break down when you have extra money you want to save, and so it was in this case. Shirley had just got back a sizable income tax refund of $300 and had wanted to open a savings account. However, the mischievous spirits that interfered with the best laid plans of mice and men were not going to allow that to happen. The OG box television had finally displayed its last image. The picture tube had blown and it was going to cost too much to replace it. Shirley felt a small tinge of remorse as the television repairman hauled it off. It was one of the last things she had left that Leroy had brought for her. She had many pleasant memories of nights spent in his arms, bathed in the glow of its bluish light. Shirley resigned herself to the fact that a savings account was not in her future and decided to go television shopping. Shirley had decided to get the best television she could afford no matter the cost. She returned home with a state-of-the-art 13-inch Zenith color television. She also splurged on a new directional UHF antenna so that they could pick up the new station out of Kansas City. The new UHF station showed reruns of classic television shows and lots of classic movies. If there was one thing that Shirley loved, it was classic movies, especially classic westerns, and if those westerns starred John Wayne, all the better. Shirley handed Jimmy a bowl of popcorn, scooping some of it out into a smaller bowl, which she sat down in front of her seven-year-old daughter, Patty. Jimmy busied himself munching on the salty, buttery kernels, waiting for the movie to start. Patty played with her dolls, making up her own movie, not caring about the one that was getting ready to start on the new television set. A nesty commercial was showing on the set. A man was falling backward into a pool, demonstrating the refreshing flavor of the instant powder. Jimmy? Do you want a glass of tea before I sit down? 
Shirley asked. Jimmy nodded his head. Yes, Mom, came his reply. Shirley asked the same question to Patty, who shook her head no. A couple of minutes later, Shirley returned from the kitchen, two glasses of iced tea in her hands. She handed one to Jimmy and sat down in her easy chair. She had just got comfortable when the opening credits of the movie started on the television. The dramatic, patriotic beat of the Western music filled the room as the television screen filled with the movie's title, McQuinnick, starring John Wayne and Maureen O'Hare. Jimmy stretched out on the couch. I like this movie, Mom, Jimmy said. I know, so do I. Now be quiet. It's starting. Shirley placed her finger to her lips to indicate that Jimmy should hush. The image of the Duke filled the screen and they settled in for an evening's entertainment. The only thing that Shirley hated about watching movies on television was the number of commercials that they showed. Sometimes she would think, if I hear I can't believe I ate the whole thing one more time, I'm going to puke up the whole thing. Oh well, Shirley reasoned, it's a great time to use the John and grab a drink. The movie was about halfway through when another commercial interrupted the action. The scene that's getting ready to happen after the commercial, Shirley told Jimmy, is my favorite in the movie. He turned to look at his mom. Is it the mud fight? Jimmy excitedly asked. Yes, it is, she laughed. They were all drunk the day they filmed it, and it took all day to do it. Shirley let out another laugh. She liked giving Jimmy little pieces of trivia about different things. He had a mind like a steel trap and seemed to absorb everything she told him. Yeah, I remember, he said. I think it's funny that Maureen O'Hara actually stabbed John Wayne in the butt with that half pin, Jimmy giggled. Shush now, Shirley said. It's coming back on. The image of the Duke filled the screen again. He was jabbing a rifle butt into the stomach of another man who was standing at the edge of the mud pit. One of these days, mister, John Wayne said through gritted teeth, someone's gonna hit you, but I won't hit you. I won't hit you. The Duke slammed the rifle back into the other man's hands and made to turn away. The hell I won't. The Duke spun around with a sledgehammer fist, laying square into the jaw of the other man. The man sailed through the air and went sliding down to the mud pit, and the free-for-all was on. It was at this moment that the phone in Shirley's bedroom began to ring. Shirley shoved herself out of the easy chair. Damn it all to hell, she said, snatching her tea glass off the end table. Son of a bitch couldn't call during the commercial. Hell no! She stormed into her bedroom and snatched the phone off the hook. Jimmy laughed to himself. He could hear a tone of aggravation in his mother's voice as she answered the call. Hello? Pause. Yes, this is her. Pause. Oh, hello, Cecil. Haven't heard from you in a while. What's... Pause. Yes? Pause. What? Pause. Oh, God. Jimmy heard the sound of Shirley's tea glass hitting the floor as she sat down hard on the edge of her bed. Oh, my dear Lord, she exclaimed. When? Jimmy rushed to the bedroom door. Mom, are you okay? He asked in a note of concern in his voice. Shirley placed her hand over the mouthpiece. Yes, I I'm okay, she said as tears were starting to form in her eyes. Go, go back and watch the movie. She tried to force a smile. Are you sure? Who's on the phone? Jimmy demanded. It's your Uncle Cecil now. Please, Jimmy, go watch the movie. Jimmy's anxiety lessened at the mention of his uncle's name. Oh, okay, Mom. Tell Uncle Cecil I said hi. Shirley made a shooing motion with her hand. Okay, I will now. Go close the door behind you. Jimmy left the room a little puzzled. He could not recall the last time that his mom had shut her bedroom door. 
but he did as he was told and closed it behind him. He tried to concentrate on the movie, but he couldn't. He kept trying to decipher the muffled conversation coming from behind the bedroom door. During a commercial, he had moved over to the door and placed his ear against it, trying to hear his mother's side of the conversation. I'm going to tell Mommy your spine, his sister whined. Shut up, you little brat, Jimmy hissed. I'm telling you, call me a brat, she threatened. Jimmy went back to the couch and sat down, flipping the bird at the back of his sister's head. Mr. McClintock was chasing Mrs. McClintock down the dusty western street with the intention of spanking the obstinate woman. Jimmy had momentarily forgotten about his mother's conversation and become involved with the movie again. He had become especially fascinated with watching the shapely Marine O'Hare who played Mrs. McClintock, running in nothing more than her lace panels. At 13 years old, Jimmy was starting to pay more and more attention to rounded buttocks and full breast. The bedroom door swung open and Shirley crossed the room back to her recliner. Jimmy felt a slight twinge of embarrassment over the intensity with which he had been watching the movie when she re-entered the room. "'What's up, Mom?' Jimmy asked. Shirley sat down and stared blankly at the television. "'Watch the movie,' she instructed. "'We'll talk when it's over.' Jimmy started to protest when Shirley came off abruptly. "'Watch the movie,' I said. She looked at her daughter. "'Patricia, get ready for bed.' It's about your father, Shirley began. Jimmy cut her off. Ernie, is he okay? Ernie Stewart was Patty's father and Jimmy's stepfather. He was also the only father that Jimmy had ever truly known and loved. No, it's not about Ernie, she said. It's about your real father, Leroy. Jimmy was confused. Why all the secrets? What about him, Mom? Jimmy asked. He was starting to feel anxious and could not explain why. Jimmy? Shirley was finding that this would be harder than she thought. Do you remember how I told you your father died? Jimmy nodded his head. Yeah, you said why he was serving a sentence for murder that he had had an accident and a bunch of logs rolled over him and crushed him to death. Shirley swallowed hard, trying to find the right words to say. She reached for her pack of Bel Air cigarettes and lit one, letting the cool menthol smoke caress her lungs. Jimmy, that's not entirely true. A look of confusion crossed the young teenager's face. He was crushed, she paused, but he didn't die. He's been in a coma, a vegetable. I guess from what your Uncle Cecil just told me about a year ago, he woke up out of the coma. As she spoke, she found it easier to explain. He has been going through rehabilitation and therapy. As soon as he was able to speak, he asked about you. Shirley looked at the blank expression on her son, unable to read the thoughts that were coursing through his head or the emotions tearing through his heart. Jimmy, say something. He looked at her and formed his mouth around a word. Why? was all he asked. I guess I have some explaining to do, Shirley said, stubbing her cigarette. Jimmy's eyes warned her, and she fought to hold back her tears. You have to understand. I loved your father very much. Well, that's it for this week's episode of the Rubber Biscuit Road Show. Tune in next week for episode 11 when we say, Hasta la vista, baby. But until that time, this is your friendly neighborhood gypsy saying may God bless and keep you and yours. Later, Gators. Bye-bye now. <laughs>